Father, thank you this morning for worship. Thank you for the privilege of saying to you most of all, but also saying to one another and saying to our community that our hearts are aligned with you. So many things that compete for our attention on a daily basis. So many ungodly movements of the heart and the flesh towards unrighteousness. But what we really want is you. And that's why we're here. To declare your goodness, to declare your glory, to declare our love to you. And isn't it just like you to take the gift that we give you of our worship and use it for our good? And we ask that you would do that in the next 45 minutes to hour. That as we hear the word of God exposed and as we come to the table of communion, that we would be changed. That we would not come to this word and hear it And say at the end of it, well, that was nice. But Father, you would grip our hearts with it. And that you would move us to greater delight in you. And greater conformity to Christ our Savior. In whose name we pray. Amen. Unbelievers have many complaints against God. But I suppose of all the complaints against God that is the greatest, is the complaint that God is wrathful. And particularly, not just that God is wrathful, but that God would condemn sinners to hell. I mean, who is He to do that? And how unloving and how ungracious and how unkind... How can God send anyone to hell and still be God who claims to be loving? That's the complaint. The skeptic Bertrand Russell said the primary reason that he could never believe in Jesus was that Jesus was, quote, so clearly believed in the wrath of God. He called Jesus' belief in the wrath of God, quote, the one profound defect in Jesus' character, end quote. Even C.S. Lewis struggled with the truth of God's wrath, writing, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than God's wrath if it lay in my power. Praise the Lord, it doesn't lay in his power, and he could not do that, for God is wrathful. Brothers and sisters, if God was not wrathful, it would mean that he does not care about justice. It does. It would mean that he does not care about unrighteousness. It would mean that he does not care about sin and all of its implications. It would mean that he does not care for people who suffer at the hands of sinners. It would mean that he was complacent about correcting wrongs. It would mean that he was uncaring and unjust. And frankly, even unbelievers know this. Romans chapter 1 tells us that they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They they push it down, attempt to hold it down. But they know in their hearts the reality. 
And one of the reasons unbelievers continue to press against and push against the wrath of God in their objections is that they want to engage in their sinful activity without any kind of retribution from God. But they know. Believers also struggle at times with the justice of God and the wrath of God. Our struggle is from a different perspective, though. Sometimes we struggle with it because it seems to come so terribly slowly. And we see the proliferation of injustice and unrighteousness in the world. And we say something like, does God even care? When will he act? Long, O Lord. And is this very thesis that Zechariah addresses in the beginning of the ninth chapter of Zechariah. And what we'll find in these eight verses, Zechariah 9, 1 to 8, is this theme. Be encouraged, brother and sister, because God's wrath is God's ultimate protection of His people. And we'll see that protection in two particular ways. But I want you to understand as we head into this passage that that God's wrath is just, God's wrath is appropriate, God's wrath is coming, and God's wrath is protection for His people. When we think about God's wrath, and we're going to tie God's wrath this morning to redemption, and we're going to see that particularly in this passage, it is tempting to take these two ideas, God's wrath and God's redemption, And understand them as competing truths, as if they are in opposition to one another. Perhaps even contradictory truths. But in this passage, what they are presented as are complementary truths. And so what I want us to see this morning are two complementary truths about God's wrath. As we come to Zechariah chapter 9, just to orient you. Somebody asked me yesterday, are you still in Zechariah? It seems like you're going awfully slowly. It's like, yeah, I know. It's the way I roll. Uh, But if you have gotten lost, let me just kind of remind you of where we are in the book. Chapters 1 to 8 are God's focus on the issues pertaining to the reconstruction of the temple in Zechariah's day. So they're prophecies that were given in that day to encourage the rebuilding of the temple. There's no clear marker in the text, but it seems the way it's written that starting in chapter 9, we have a shift in idea and perhaps and probably a shift in a great many years. This might be significantly later in Zechariah's ministry. And now he is not concerned about what is going on in his particular day, but he is thinking about the future. The words, that day are used 21 times in the book of Zechariah. And they refer to the eschatological kingdom, the final kingdom of God, the the eschaton, the final, the millennial kingdom. Those words, that day, are used twice in chapters 1 to 8 and 19 times in chapters 9 to 14. And it seems that Zechariah is kind of pulling the lens back, looking further out into the future beyond the present day and what will come. And in particular, in chapters 9 to 14, he's going to focus on two burdens. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But chapter 9, 1, we see the burden of the Lord against the nations. And in chapter 12, we find the burden of the Lord for Israel. And so those last chapters, the final message of Zechariah about the end times, what will life be like in the future, in the kingdom, 
relates chapters 9 to 11 about the nations primarily and to the nation of Israel in chapters 12 to 14. So that's where we're going. Observing two complementary truths this morning about God's wrath. First of all, God will be righteous in his wrath. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, verses 1 to 6. And as we come to this text, I want you to notice how he begins. I've already alluded to it. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach or Hadrach. That word burden is something, denotes something that is spoken. So it's, it's not just something heavy, which it is, but it is, it is an announcement. It is a pronouncement. It's a declaration. And here he notes that it's not just a declaration, but notice that he says it is the burden of the word of the Lord. So it is a burden that is spoken. It's a word and it is a word that comes from the Lord. It comes from Yahweh. It comes from the covenant God of Israel. It's the one who is protecting his people and guarding his people and shaping his people. It is one that comes from the Lord, which means it is coming with authority. It comes with power. It comes with dignity. It comes with all of the authoritative power that is in heaven. I've already noted this. It is a burden. The fact that it is a burden denotes that it is something that is heavy. It is weighty. This is no glib statement. This is nothing easy. It is God's declaration that he is against someone. In this particular case, it is that he is against a nation. And verses 2 and following, not just one nation, but a multiplicity of nations and cities. It is tremendously heavy. God is against you. And it comes with that soberness. And Zechariah feels the weightiness. And he wants his readers to understand there's something heavy that's coming. In this burden, God has things to say against three nations in these opening verses. First of all, he will speak the burden of his wrath against Syria. That's verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. Here the first city that's mentioned is Hadrach. This is the only place in the Old Testament where it is mentioned, and scholars wondered for a great many years, where in the world is that place? Does it even exist? And then more recently, we have found in secular writings allusions to this, We don't know still the exact pinpoint location of it, but we do know that it is north of the land of Israel and it is north of the city of Damascus, somewhere between 15 and 25 miles. And in case your geography of Israel is failing you at this moment, let me give you some help. So orient you, the bottom piece of water in the um, center of the screen right here, that's the Dead Sea, Jordan River, Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem, roughly the northern border of Israel, Tyre and Sidon, we'll see them in verses 2 to 4, Damascus, which he's already alluded to in verse 1, Hamath, about 125 miles north, Um, we'll find that also in verse 2, Hadrach was probably in this region somewhere, don't know exactly, but that's roughly where it is. 
those cities, Hadrach, Damascus, were significant in the Assyrian Empire. And so you might remember way back in 722 B.C., roughly 300 years before the time when Zechariah is writing, the Assyrians took the ten northern tribes of Israel into captivity, put them into bondage, and then a hundred years or so later, a little bit more than a hundred years later, Babylon came and took the two southern tribes also into captivity. And when he denotes that Hadrach and Damascus are being singled out, it is a reminder to the nation of Israel, yes, it's been 300 years, God has not forgotten. And God will still carry out His judgment against those who have oppressed you. And His judgment will be thorough. His judgment against individuals, His judgment against the nations will be thorough so that none will be omitted. They'll all be accounted for. And what will happen as a result of this? So I should notice... Um, omitted this as we were going through. He mentions that it is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. When he says Damascus is his resting place, he says, I'm going to start in Hadrach and I'm moving south and I'm going to stop in Damascus and I'm going to park and I'm going to rest there and pour out my judgment on them. That was bad news for Damascus. God is going to rest, terminate, as it were, his judgment on them. What would be the result of that? Notice the middle of the verse, verse 1. For the eyes of men, all men, all nations, and especially of all of the tribes of Israel, north and south, are toward the Lord. Now that word for is causative, typically. We translate it because. In this particular instance, it has more of the idea of result. The result of God pouring out His wrath against the nations is that everyone is going to look to the Lord. They're going to look to Him because they're going to understand whatever judgment is taking place, it's coming from His hand and they're going to look to Him as authoritative and they are going to look to Him for repentance and in repentance. It's, it's this kind of idea of looking to the Lord that is behind that ascent song that we read earlier this morning, Psalm 123. He says, to you I lift up my eyes. It's that same idea. I'm looking to the Lord. The one, he says in 123, who is enthroned in the heavens. How will I look to him? Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to their master, as the eyes of the maid to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. We go to him for our help. And so in the same way as God is pouring out his wrath on the nations, there will be some among the nations, and especially the nation of Israel, will look to the Lord and say, be our help. He will respond to them. This is, this is the same kind of thing that we will see at the end of the age. Revelation chapter 1. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, verse 7, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierce them, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. And this is 
This is the people of the world looking to God for help. Brothers and sisters, this is... This is such a helpful, hopeful reminder for us that God is, God is righteous in what He's doing. He's not forgotten sin. He's not overlooked sin. He's not forgotten the unrighteousness of the nations. He will take care of it. He will hold accountable. He will persist in that. And brothers and sisters, He will also be righteous and redemptive in it. And, and here, God through Zechariah is just giving us a small hint of what's coming later in this passage. That not only is God wrathful, but He's also restorative. And we need to hold on to that hope that He will restore, preserve, and redeem. We see God's wrath, His declaration, His burden against Syria. We also see God's wrath against Phoenicia, verses 2 to 4. Hamath, you'll remember, he notes in verse 4, and Hamath also, which borders on it, Hamath was way to the north, well into Assyrian territory. Um, It was far to the north. Tyre and Sidon, further south, roughly on the same latitude as Damascus, but on the seacoast. Notice how he characterizes Tyre and Sidon, which is what the focus of verses 2 and 4 are on. Though they are very wise. Notice he says his burden is against them even though they are wise. And they were perceived in that day and time to be exceedingly wise. They were economically savvy. Their wisdom was characteristic of particularly powerful rulers. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 28 likens them to the rule and authority of Satan himself. And so they they come with, with all of the Wisdom, as it were, of Satan, the knowledge of Satan and the persistence of Satan. And with that, it also pictures them as coming not just with wisdom, quote unquote, but coming with pride and self-righteousness and self-exaltation. And though they are wise, yet their wisdom is not of the Lord, so the Lord's burden is against them. Why? Verse 3, for Tyre built for herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. She built a fortress. Tyre was militarily and economically strong. Tyre was actually built by King Hiram, a contemporary of King David, which goes back about 600 years into the early thousands before Christ. About 600 years earlier. And they were right on the coast. In fact, they were not quite on the coast. They were actually over the coast, as it were. They were built on a small island about a half mile off the coast. And that island made them seemingly impenetrable. The Assyrians laid siege against them for five years before they gave up and walked away, unable to conquer them. Nebuchadnezzar attacked them for 13 years before he finally gave up and was unable to conquer them. They stood alone. They were a powerful entity. Hundreds of years. Not only a powerful entity in that fortress, but extraordinarily wealthy, piled up silver like dust, like the dust that's in your house after the cedar pollinates all its pollen in Hood County. 
They've got silver in that quantity. And gold like the mire of the streets. Now think about the streets. In that day and time, they're not pouring concrete for their streets. There's no blacktop streets. It's all what? Mud. Dirt. And it's, it, the dirt becomes mud because they're a coastal city. They get lots of rain. And as muddy as the streets are, that's how much gold they have. An extraordinarily prosperous time. And the Israelites had to hear that, see that, and be thinking again, Lord, how long? How long can the righteous prosper? How long will you withhold? And how long will you not execute your judgment against them? The lament is common. Psalm 37, the, the psalmist David reminds us, don't fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious because of toward wrongdoers. For they will fade quickly, wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. But this doesn't seem like they're going away that fast, does it? It just seems like instead of fading, they're prospering. And it just, the Israelites had to look at that prosperity and that wealth and that fortress and that strength and that military and say, Lord, don't you care about righteousness? Charles Feinberg, the great Old Testament scholar, noted Tyre's mistake has been that of many a strong city before her and many since. She thought wealth would answer all her purposes. And God, for all of the military might of Tyre and Sidon and all of their economic prosperity, is not thwarted. doesn't stop him. Behold, verse 4, the Lord will dispossess her. Now, if you're looking carefully at your Bible, you've been noticing as we're reading, like in verse 1, the word of the Lord, that word Lord in verse 1 is in small capital letters, right? At least in many translations, it's rendered that way. That's the name Yahweh. It's the covenant God of Israel. But in verse 4, it's not small caps. That's the word Adonai. And it's, it's a word that means more literally Lord, Master, Sovereign, King. And that word is used, that title for God is used only four times in the book of Zechariah. And it denotes in this instance particularly that God is King and that God is victor over his foes including powerful Tyre and powerful Sidon. Tyre thought that she possessed all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the fortress and all of the protection and all of the might. Verse 4, Behold, the Lord, the Master, the Sovereign, will dispossess her. Whatever she thinks she possesses, God says, Nope, mine. And He will rip authority from her. How will He do that? And he will cast her wealth. There's a question about the word wealth. It can be translated a couple different ways. There's some nuances to it. It could be wealth. It could be power. Regardless, her wealth or her power is cast into the sea. So that which she holds on to and says, this is my strength. 
God says, no, I'm going to throw it into the sea. And isn't that ironic? Because Tyre was using the sea as her protection. It makes us impenetrable. Nobody can come across that half mile without being seen and without being conquered. And the sea becomes her destruction. And she will be, end of verse 4, consumed with fire, burned, utterly destroyed, nothing left. And that is exactly what happened. Alexander the Great said of Tyre that her island would one day become a continent. And he meant by that it will become approachable. That even though they're off the mainland, he said it will become as if they are connected to the mainland and they will be destroyed. And in 322 BC, that is exactly what Alexander did. In five months, he vanquished Tyre. Leaders were executed, citizens enslaved, and Tyre never again regained her previous stature. And through Alexander, God accomplished his promised judgment of Israel's oppressors. And just as God promised in Ezekiel 28, just as he promised in this passage, Tyre would be cast down and destroyed. And so she was. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is a hopeful reminder that unrighteousness does not stand and will not prevail. Again, Feinberg writes, wisdom, riches, and strength are of no avail against the judgment of God. Can't stand. And as you look at a perverse culture and a perverse world in which we stand as lights to the truth, this emboldens you to say, I know what's out there, and it doesn't win. And brothers and sisters, this is also not just an encouragement to us. It's a sober reminder to unbelievers that unrighteousness does not win. And friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot push against Him. You cannot resist His will and stand. You will not make it in the end. You cannot be rebellious against God without suffering the most dire, worst, eternal kinds of consequences. That's what, that's what the Apostle Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 12. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. He will repay your evil deeds. And brother, if that's your friend, if that's your position, oh, please reconsider. Please repent. Please turn away from that which you think will hold you up against God. You cannot stand. No matter what you possess, it's not enough. It wasn't for Tyre. It won't be for you. There's a third declaration of, unrighte- of, of righteous, ra- righteous wrath against the nations. It's in verses 5 and 6. It is against the cities of Philistia. Philistia, you will remember, is the closest of the nations that were receiving these burdens in this particular passage. And there are four cities mentioned in verses 5 through 7. Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, and Ashdod. There were five prominent cities in Philistia. The fifth one, Gath, isn't mentioned in this particular passage, presumably because already 
it had faded from view over prominence in out of its prominence by the time these words were written. And notice what notice what the prophet says about the cities of Philistia. Ashkelon will see see what see what happens to Tyre and be afraid. And in fact, end of verse five, it will be afraid and the result is of God's wrath against her. Ashkelon will not be inhabited. Ashkelon will be vanquished. Ashkelon will be removed. Gaza too, he says, will writhe in great pain. Also in 332, the year that, that um, Alexander vanquished Tyre, he also came against Gaza. He also vanquished Gaza five months again, similar to the nation of Tyre. In that particular time, typically, when a king was defeated, the king was allowed to live. And it was kind of a, a feather in the conquering king's cap that he had a vanquished king serving underneath him. So he became the king of kings, as it were. And so they often let them live and they become their vassals, their servants. Not so with the king of Gaza. Badus, the king of Gaza, was killed in a particularly brutal way. You don't want to know. How he died. And he was killed. The city was vanquished. And the city writhed in great pain. Another prominent city, he says, Ekron. We'll see it. And her expectation has been confounded. That means that she loses any kind of hope. Any kind of anticipation that God will be good and kind. That they will survive. That they will make it. It's confounded. It's gone. Verse 6. A mongrel race well in Ashdod. Not only will the citizens of Ashdod be removed. But mongrels, foreigners will come and inhabit the city of Ashdod. And then notice the end of verse 6. From verses 1 to the first line in verse 6. Zechariah has been speaking. And then notice the shift in the middle of verse 6. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now God interjects himself directly. And God directly speaks. And God says, I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Utter humiliation. And it comes from the hand of God. The other nations would come in in their own plans and purposes to destroy Israel's oppressors. And God makes clear that he will vanquish the nations and he is behind all of these actions that decimate these nations. It's all God's sovereign plan. It's all God's sovereign accomplishment. It is a reminder that God is behind every action of every army. It's his work. He's the one that is pushing the pieces into place. Says MacArthur, God alone is sovereign and there is no hope and no security apart from him. Now, there are historical references to these things being fulfilled largely under the Grecian Empire, largely through the hand of Alexander. But we also know that there's not a completeness to it. In fact, I've been to Ashkelon. I've spent the night in Ashkelon. I've spent a week of nights in Ashkelon. It is alive and well from secular standpoint. 
And so we understand that there's still a day coming, a final reckoning coming. And I don't want to steal my thunder for a couple of months from now, so I'm not going to read it. But Zechariah 14, the king is coming, brothers. The king is coming. And they will be vanquished in their entirety. This all reminds us, these first six verses, that God's wrath is God's righteous, holy retribution against all that is wrong. Says one writer, it is against all that has defiled this world, all that has defied His law, all that has rejected His rule, and all that has spurned His love expressed in Christ. It is the pure reaction of God to all that is impure. And that's why He must be wrathful. I mean, honestly... I I was going to say something. I was going to say, I don't know of anybody that likes speaking about the wrath of God. Some do like speaking about it because they have unrighteous delight in it. We, we shouldn't take perverse delight in this. We should take comfort from it. But this is hard, isn't it? This is heavy. It is exactly what he said. It's a burden. It's weighty. It's difficult. And the encouragement for us is that there is never any unrighteousness that will be unpunished. Any personal unrighteousness, any societal unrighteousness, God will address it all. I was reading this morning Psalm 58 as part of just regular reading. If you're following along in one of our reading plans, that was the psalm, one of the psalms for this morning. In Psalm 58, David recounts in the first five verses the evil of the world in which he's living. In verses 6 to 9, he calls out God's wrath and God's judgment against those nations. And then he writes this in verse 10, Psalm 58. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance he will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, he's not talking about anything perverse there. He's, he's using the blood of the wicked simply to talk about there's victory. And, and the, the believer, the follower of God, will rejoice in the victory of God when the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God's people are vanquished. And then he says in verse 11, And men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. He's going to take care of it. And we can trust that. That's one side of this. There's also an implied warning here as well. I've already alluded to it. It is that no personal sinner will ever escape the wrath of God. If you are a sinner this morning who is unrepentant and you have never turned to Jesus Christ to forgive you for your sin, my friend, you're in trouble. I don't say that glibly. I don't say that sarcastically. I say that with the weightiness of this text. You're in trouble. You are opposed to God who is never opposed by anyone so that they stand. He will crush you and he will condemn you. He will not be mocked. He will not be ignored. He is patient, but he is only patient so that you can repent. Oh, friend, 
I urge you and I compel you, if you don't trust Christ yet, would you trust Him now? Would you turn away from your sin and say, I don't want that anymore. It's only bringing death. And turn in faith to Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for that sin and died to redeem you, to free you so that you can live for Him. So turn from the sin to Christ in faith. Oh friend, as we come to the communion table this morning, there's nothing better that you can do on a communion morning than trust Christ for your salvation. And the beauty of this is, the beauty of this passage is, you can repent. And the passage tells us that. How can I say that? Verse 7. God will be gracious in His redemption. Despite God's judgment on Philistia and the other nations, there is hope for them. Mercy, friends, follows judgment. One theologian has said, when logic of the situation demands that he, he God, should take action against the sinner, and he yet takes action for him, then and then alone can we speak of grace. God has every right to pour out His wrath against every sinner and instead He takes action for them. And brothers and sisters, that's astounding grace. And we see grace in two ways in this passage. We see grace in verse 7 to the nations. Notice what He says, verse 7, And I, again, God is still speaking, I will remove their blood from their mouth. Now, that could be a couple of things. It could mean... Um, there are violent people and he's removing their violence from them. That's certainly pictured there. But I think what he means is something more akin to their idolatrous worship. So part of, part of the worship of Israel was that they weren't supposed to eat meat that was, uh, that was with blood, right? So the blood was to be removed and, and the pagan nations ate bloody meat as it were. And he's saying that's, that's a form of their idolatrous worship and I'm stripping that idolatrous worship from them. And all of the detestable things between their teeth, those detestable things, dishonorable things, ungodly things, horrid things, that's a, a word that's used fairly regularly in the Old Testament law, Matthew, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they will also become... A remnant for our God. I'm going to take their idolatry away. And I'm going to make them a remnant. Now the word remnant is a common picture in the Old Testament. How God is preserving His people. And we speak often of the remnant of Israel. That there's always someone who hasn't bowed the knee. There's always someone who hasn't turned away from God, who hasn't turned away from Christ. And God is preserving His people through that remnant. That's, that's really a big theme of Romans 9-11. to And we won't go back and unpack the 15 or 20 sermons that we went through back then. But that, that's, the, that's the message. God's got a remnant. He's going to preserve. And Israel will be preserved. But here... He's not talking about the remnant of Israel and preserving His promise to the nation of Israel. He says, I have a a remnant among the Gentiles. That there's grace even 
for the most despicable of the nations. It's the message that God loves to save sinners, even sinners who are his enemies. And that's good news for you and me. Because we were his enemy too. And he loves to save us. So even among the Gentiles, there's going to be a remnant that will be for our God to serve, to be devoted to our God. And then notice the next line. And be like a clan in Judah. Like Ekron will become like a Jebusite. They will become a clan, a family within Judah. We're unfolded into the promises given to God's promised people. This is, again, Romans 11. 30 to 32. Ekron becomes like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were people that lived in the land of Canaan, specifically in the, land, in the city of Jerusalem, when the nation of Israel came in to inhabit the land after they left Egypt. And they didn't push out the Jebusites. And the Jebusites just became kind of enfolded in. They became part of Israel. And he says that's exactly what's going to happen to Philistia. They're going to become part of us. And brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that God is opposed to all sin, but He is gracious to all sinners. And though He has a promised plan for Israel, yet He will also be gracious to the nations. Revelation reminds us 7-9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The nations stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what's going on here. The nations come and experience the grace of God. Oh, brother and sister, the depth and breadth of our sin is, is incomprehensible to us. And God's grace is so great that it infinitely supersedes the horridness of our sin. There's grace to be had. Whatever your sin, however much your sin, you can repent and God will forgive. And he will see you clothed, not with a false righteousness of your own, but with the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a further grace here. It is God's grace to Israel. Not only is he gracious to the nations, but he is gracious to Israel. Notice verse 8. I will encamp, my, I will encamp around my house because of an army. I'll camp around. What's that picturing? That's picturing protection. God's army is showing up and he's camping around his house. What's his house? That word house is often used for the temple in Israel. And, and that would seem to be fitting here, certainly because of the rebuilding of the temple. I think it's more than that. I think, I think it's not just the temple of Jerusalem and the temple of Israel, but it's, it's the, the, the people of Israel itself. Notice he says, because of an army, uh, because of him who passes by and returns, and because of those who oppress and so I think he's looking not just at the protection of 
of the faith of Israel, but he's looking at protecting the people and the nation. And God is surrounding and God is protecting such that no oppressor will ever again overwhelm or defeat Israel. They've oppressed in the past. That will not happen again in the future. He says, it will not happen, middle of verse 8, any more. It's done. It points to a, a permanent provision, an eternal provision. Alexander came and protected the nation of Israel and vanquished some of her oppre- their oppressors, but that was temporary, and this is permanent. There is a king that is coming who will provide a permanent provision And then notice the last thing that is comforting for the nation of Israel. For now I have seen with my eyes. God's watching. God is not unaware of the oppression of his people. Then or now. His eyes see it. And that means that he's holding accountable And that he will continue to hold accountable. This is, this is safety for us, friends. We're safe under the eyes of God. Now notice what has happened in this passage. He started 9-1 in Hadrach, north of Damascus. Went further north, verse 2, to Hamath. And then he moved south to Damascus. And he moved south to Tyre and Sidon. And he moves south into Philistia. And now, in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. So he starts north and he moves south and he comes into his city. The king seated on his donkey to take the throne of God. God's eye is on His people and God is with His people preserving, protecting, and keeping them. Whatever's happening in this world, whatever's happening to God's people, if, they're, if they are His, His eye is on them and they are safe. If you are suffering this morning, His eye is on you. And you are safe. He'll fix it. The king is coming. And he will restore. Our Father, we thank you this morning for these reminders. Thank you for your provision of care for us. Thank you for your provision of care for the nation of Israel. And that even while they suffered seemingly unrelentingly at times, they were safe. Your eye was on them. And so it is with us who are yours now. Your eye is on us. We are safe. Your wrath will not be avoided. And your king, our king, is coming. And he will reign for all of eternity and there will be no more oppression any more thank you father 
for the goodness of your righteousness. Thank you for the goodness of your wrath. And thank you that you redeem those who were at one time under your wrath so that we might worship you in holiness and truth. Thank you, Father. How magnificently great and gracious you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.